In February of 1812, an American Baptist missionary by the name of Arnim Judson and his wife Anne and two close friends of theirs, Samuel and Harriet Newell, sailed from Salem, Massachusetts to Burma, India to share the gospel among an unreached people group. Uh, in April of 1819, that's six and a half years later, after uh, really one of the most tumultuous times in their life, uh, difficult labors, uh, after the loss of a young son, many bouts of illnesses and sicknesses, both by uh, Arnim and Anne and Samuel and Harriet, uh, they hurt, they've held, excuse me, um, their very first service. So they labored for seven years before they were able to have their very first service there in Burma. Uh, then, just after two short months, on June 27, 1819, seven years and four months after Judson had left, after he had left, left America, he saw their very first convert. The secret of his faith, which enabled him to endure without worry so many years, sowing in a field which really never bore much fruit. Judson persevered, uh, longing and, and waiting and weeping, even over the death of his own son, wishing that that people would see and hear and receive the gospel. Judson wrote, in joy or sorrow, health or pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain, we reap on Zion's hill. We sing many of Judson's hymns and he celebrated the fruit of the gospel because he knew in the power and he believed in the power of the gospel. When Judson began his work in Burma, he had set some goals. One of those goals was to see the Bible translated in the Burmese language, in the dialect that he was seeking to reach. You know, as Americans, we take for granted the, 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 really the exposition, exponential, excuse me, number of Bibles that we have around. I would imagine at home right now, you might have one or two Bibles in various translations city to home. Friends, there are people globally today 6,000 various people groups that do not have a Bible in their language, in their heart language, that they can read and, and hear about Jesus like we're going to read this morning in, Matthew, in Mark's Gospel. They don't have that. And there in Burma at the time, there was no Bible in, in their language. And by the time of Judson's death, he was able to complete a translation of the Bible in the Burmese language. They planted over a hundred churches and saw over 8,000 sinners come to Christ in just the short time that he served there. In large part due to his influence, Burma has become and still is the third largest country of Baptist worldwide behind the United States and India. India is where our brother William Carey served before Judson. What, why would I share a story like that? Why call your attention to someone like that? Why, why, do we, why is Judson so important? Why did Judson keep going? I mean, he was a failure. 
Seven years without a single convert? I mean, really, Judson, what were you doing wrong? What were you doing wrong? That you were sharing the gospel wrongly, Judson. What, what was it? I mean, look around at your, your wife. She's sick all the time. Uh, your kids are dying. What are you doing? Are these people really worth losing your life for? Judson, what is going on? Why didn't you just leave? I mean, after at least a year, why didn't you leave? Why did you stay to the third year and the fourth year and the fifth year? All the way up to the... Why did you persevere and why did you continue? Friends, we live in a world where Judson is silly. Because if we don't see results, we conclude we are doing something wrong. We live in a culture here in America that teaches success equals results. And if you don't have results, if there's not numbers to follow your plans and programs, your company or whatever you're doing, you are a failure. And friends, we have to come and recognize as a congregation, do we believe that? Do we believe what the Southern Baptist Convention says, that numbers mean success? I don't think so. I think they're wrong. That's why I don't like numbers. You can ask Winnie how much I don't like numbers. I, I, tell, I don't want to see numbers. Why? Because numbers do not communicate what you think they do. And the story we're going to see this morning tells us the reality of that. Numbers and success is not dependent upon our broken labor. The success that Judson experienced there in Burma or Kerry in India or Luther Rice, those men who labored hard for the sake of the gospel were bearing fruit that they did not produce. And today, as a congregation, do you recognize that the pew you're sitting on and the building that you're enjoying was labor for which you did not build? Your, 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 your giving didn't build this place. <laughs> Unless you're really, really old. <laughs> we are standing upon the shoulders of brothers and sisters who believed in the power of the gospel in our community. Why would he continue? Because Judson believed in the unwavering sovereignty of God. Judson believed that God wins in the end. He, he didn't believe the reports that he was getting back home from the triennial convention that was saying, hey Judson, it's kind of, it's kind of time to cut ties because we're not seeing the numbers. Why are we pouring money into a program that's failing? Look Judson, maybe you're just not doing it right. We don't know what, we're going to have to cut you off. And, and he came back and he fought and he fought and Luther Rice fought to receive money and funding to continue their work because they believed in the power of the gospel. He knew that growth was not a product of human will or exertion. He threw himself upon God's sovereign grace and trusted and patiently waited for it to bear fruit. Friends, sometimes 
We're going to sow on barren land and not see fruit. And so I hope this morning to attack our idol of success. To attack our idol of numbers. And explode and come to an unwavering trust in the sovereignty of God in our lives. I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. If, you've, uh, if you're just visiting with us today, we've been making a journey through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, since I came back in September, uh, we have been slowly uh, but steadily making our way through this wonderful Gospel um, that helps us understand who Jesus is and what does it look like to follow Him. So if you just want just a summary of what we've seen and what we will see, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, fully God and fully man. And those who are his followers are called disciples. They're those who give up everything to follow Jesus. They're the ones who count the cost of following him and, and say, you know what? I'm going to give up my whole life to follow Jesus. And that's what we see in the Gospel of Mark and what we'll continue to see. And what we come to this morning here is Jesus and, and what is probably his most notorious form of teaching. And that is a parable. Jesus loved to use parables. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we considered the purpose of parables and that Jesus tells parables to both confront or conceal the truth and to also reveal truth. Jesus is using these parables to conceal the truth about God and his kingdom from those who do not want to listen, those who have hardened their hearts. But he's using them to illustrate or enlighten the minds of his disciples for those that are humble and want to receive the truth of God and his word. Let's read together, or I will read to you, be clear there. Mark chapter 4 and verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed, sprout, the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out branch, large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke to the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. What is the point of Jesus' parables here? Clearly, Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? What is it like? What we learn here in this passage is that the kingdom of God grows mysteriously, independent of human effort, and will in the end be gloriously and magnificently far-reaching. 
the kingdom of God grows mysteriously. Independent of human effort. And will in the end, in its final consummation, be glorious in its display. If we were to think about this passage this morning, I want to begin as we think about it. Uh, what is the kingdom of God? I think what's helpful is we begin to understand and sort of uh, unpack, if you will, or, or begin to kind of just think about what this passage is teaching. We've got to understand, like, what is the kingdom of God? What is that? And what is it that Jesus is trying to describe about it? So we're going to consider what Jesus means uh, by using that phrase, kingdom of God, then uh, really then consider two aspects that he presents in this kingdom. So what is the kingdom? And then just sort of some aspects, and then finally we'll, we'll wrap up with a couple application. In light of what Jesus says about the kingdom, how does this shape and transform our lives together? First, the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign and rule of God over human hearts. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God, what Jesus means isn't a geographical uh, location, right? So why I say that is because in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew records these same parables, he records Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like, right? Only Luke and Mark use this phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, why the difference? Well, it really mattered down. It really just comes down to audience who who they're writing to. Matthew's writing to Jews, uh, Jewish Christians. Uh, Mark and Luke are writing to Gentiles. Those those not as familiar with the Old Testament language. So so a, a Jewish Christian hearing that word heaven, they wouldn't actually understand it to be equal. When someone says kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, they're really synonymous. Right, so just kind of put that in your mind. But with that comes a misunderstanding. When we talk about heaven, we often talk about this place in the sky, this, this sort of place we all go to. This, you know, uh, We have a misunderstanding that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is not a particular place but deals with a particular role in which God plays in the economy of the world. That is, God is ruling and reigning over people. Now, to understand that, we really have to begin to just understand Jesus' usage of it. So Jesus first uses this phrase all the way back in chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, he says this, Now, John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus' coming marked the beginning or the ushering in or the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Now why? Because the king was there. Wherever the king is, that's where his reign is. Wherever the king is ruling, well, that's geographically, well, that's where the kingdom is, right? So I, I say all this is, is I don't want you to think, like, limit your thinking this morning to a particular place. Now, the kingdom of God is a particular rule. It is a geographical location, but it's not limited to that. So if we go to Revelation 22, we see the kingdom of God comes on earth 
Right? So earth is the realm by which Jesus will reign. Right? So Jesus reigns here. Right? And so I want you to just kind of grasp that this morning. When we think about God's kingdom, we are not thinking in geographical terms, but rather thinking about His reign and rule over human hearts. Listen to this quote from David Platt. I find it kind of helpful thinking about this. In short, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ. The fundamental word is rule or reign. Because when we talk about the kingdom, we are talking about the authority and sovereignty of God as king. It is used to describe how God is asserting his authority in the redemption of sinners through Christ, the promised Messiah. So in that quote, you saw a couple of things. Authority. It's Jesus exercising his authority over the human life, over the human heart. And so in the gospel, when those turn from their sin and trust in Christ, as their substitute for their sin, what they are doing is they are submitting themselves. What Christians are doing are submitting themselves under the authority of God's kingdom. That that is, we are submitting our hearts to go God's way and to live God's way rather than our own way. And so God's kingdom is about His reign and rule over your heart. About His rule in your life. And what we're doing in submitting to the gospel, in submitting to Christ's lordship, is that we're saying, God, I'm tired of running life my own way. I'm going to do it your way. Right? That's That's what we come to in the gospel. When we are confronted with our sin, when our hearts are awakened to our sinfulness, we recognize that sin kills. Right? I mean, I mean, I hear so many testimonies all the time. I, I hear how, how the gospel gripped your life, right? And, and what a common theme that I hear is that I was living a life of sin, and I realized that I was going nowhere. I was killing myself. I, I was on a road to death. And we use that language because that communicates where sin leads us. Sin in the kingdom of darkness leads to death. That's where it leads. It doesn't have the promise of life, but the kingdom of God has the promise of life. And so when we come to the gospel in repentance, what we are doing there is we are shifting. We are pivoting. We're pivoting from a life of living under our own authority and rule, and we're submitting ourselves to the rule and reign of Christ. Friends, we see that positionally it is different, right? We are submitting ourselves to living life God's way. Now, as Christians, we recognize we don't do that perfectly, right? Every day, right? So historically, Christians have used this. We don't talk about repenting in the sense of like repented, like past tense, right? You notice that like if you ever read something old, they never talk about repentance as as a past tense activity, as if it happened in the past. Now, if you go to the Bible, you're never going to find that. You're going to find present Tense, active, regular repentance, right? I am a repentant sinner. That is, there's a life of continual turning and submitting to Christ in his kingdom, right? 
So, so don't you, we got to be cautious using that sort of, I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ. That's accurate, that's true, right? But I am also repenting. And so when we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about how God is slowly but surely captivating the hearts of sinners, capturing them from their slavery to sin. And when we think about God's kingdom, we also want to think about it not just in the present, but also in the future. The Bible has this sort of tension. There's a tension between the already of God's kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. But also, in, if you go to Mark chapter 13, you know, in the same breath, Jesus says, but the kingdom is not yet. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is, is not fully realized yet. Right? And so what we believe is that the kingdom will be ushered in in its full capacity and power at the second coming of Christ. So when Jesus returns, that's when the king sets up shop here on earth. Does that make sense? Okay? So we want to think in those terms when we kind of now think about these two parables. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign and rule of God over human hearts. So picture that in your mind. God's rule in your life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So when we think about that, let's think now about these two parables. First, the parable of the seed sown on the ground. What is the point of this parable? It's this. The kingdom of God grows mysteriously independent of human hearts and human effort. Notice how Jesus describes the kingdom in this first parable. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. I want you to notice here the position and the responsibility and the role that the farmer plays in this narrative. The point of this narrative is to illustrate that the farmer is disconnected from the growth of the seed. Notice in this short parable how little he is mentioned. And when he is mentioned, all he's doing is sleeping. Right? There's this emphasis on his ignorance also. Notice, he doesn't know how it grows. Right? So the man's just out scattering seed. Right? He's just out now, he's out there just casually casting seed. Now, now Jesus is communicating this in its original context to farmers. Right? People that knew how to farm. Now, you know, first century farming wasn't like that. These people were professional farmers, okay? So they, they weren't ignorant in the sense of they knew how to farm. So it wasn't, you know, so don't take your 21st century understanding of farming and sort of bring that back to the end like, oh, they're foolish. No, they were pretty, they were pretty skilled. They had many years of farming. I mean, you gotta, you, you get good at things when your uh, food and livelihood depends on it, right? You, you figure out how to farm uh, when, if you don't, uh, you starve to death and die and your kids starve. You know, you figure it out. And so, so don't just think that this guy was an idiot. I mean, he, he, he you know, but Jesus' emphasis here is not to mention, you know, his agricultural techniques and his watering and all those things. The point is to emphasize that his responsibility is insignificant in the grand scheme of things. So in the grand scheme of God's kingdom, the sower plays a very small role. He's really, his primary role, he sleeps a lot. And he gets up 
And he goes back to sleep. And he gets up, and he goes back to sleep. Night and day, he does it. Back and forth, up and down. He wakes up, he goes to sleep. He's disconnected from the whole economy of God's kingdom growing. Right? The sower has nothing to do with the production of the crop outside of him casting the seed. That's all he did. He just threw the seed out on the ground. Right? He scatters the seed and goes about his life. Disconnected. Little is said about this. But I want you to notice then also that this man, and what Jesus' point is, is that the kingdom grows mysteriously. Notice what he says in verse 26. He says, or excuse me, verse 27. Night and day, he sleeps, he rises, gets up, does, goes about his life, does all of those things, right? And, and he sits there scratching his head. Right? He's just scratching his head. Like, I don't know how it's happened. Like, I was sleeping and I got up in the morning and, man, it was there, right? I mean, if you've ever been like, like, you know, like school, like science project where you got to plant seeds or if you're like a big, you know, farm, you know, you got your little garden in the backyard, right? There is something miraculous about a goofy fool planting a seed and it growing into a plant. Right? There's something amazing about that, right? I mean, you may be like an expert at, at, at gardening and stuff like that or, or, or flowers and, and you always have success. In, but it is always amazing, isn't it? Even if, you, even if some of you guys and ladies this morning, like, that's your thing, plants and gardens, and, and you can't wait till it gets warmer outside to get, get into that, right? It's still amazing. It is wonderful. Uh, horticulturists, those, you know, that, I know it's a fancy word, but, they, you know, they're like horticulturists, those guys that play with plants all day long, that's their profession. You know, horticulturists will tell you that they are still amazed by the germination process. I mean, scientists who devote their lives to, to looking at how a seed germinates and grows, they're just like, I don't understand it. It's, it's mysterious. It's amazing. And I just think how in the first century, how more amazed they were when a plant would grow. I don't know. I just went out there and cast the seed on the ground and got up this morning and by, well, goodness gracious, there it is. Right? I didn't do anything about that. Right? Jesus is emphasizing that God's kingdom grows not according to our plans. God's kingdom doesn't grow according to our thinking. It's an amazing thing to see the kingdom of God grow. It's wonderful and mysterious, and we should worship God for that. Friends, when we see people come to faith in Christ, when we see darkness push back, we should stand and, and shout with joy and exuberance and excitement. We should pray that God's kingdom would grow. So that we can stand in the light of it and, and bask in the glory of it all. Have you ever wondered that, that sometimes God lets you see growth so that you can worship him? That farmer was worshiping God because he was not ignorant. He knew how it grew. He knew God grew that seed. He gave the glory to God. But Jesus is emphasizing here the mysterious nature of the kingdom of God. He also is emphasizing, then secondly, we see the, the success of the kingdom of God doesn't depend on human effort. It doesn't depend on human effort. Look at verse 28. He says, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the air. By itself. It produces. I like the way the uh, NIV, Holman Christian, or NIV translates, all by itself. I like that. All by itself it grew. 
right? Just all by itself out there. That underlining word there is automate, right? Where we get the word uh, automatic, right? Automatic, automate. It, it, is, it is by itself. It grew, right? Just all by itself. It, it just kind of sprouted up. This didn't do it. All by itself. It, Jesus is, is emphasizing here the disconnect between human effort and the growth of God's kingdom. It grows automatically by itself apart from our, our getting in there and working on it, right? And that is good news. That is glorious. That's the best news you're going to hear today is that God's kingdom does not depend on us because we uh, aren't very dependable. We are, in a sense, in the economy of God's world, of His kingdom, we are not producers of God's kingdom. We are consumers of God's kingdom. I'm amazed at my house how often... Things happen all by themselves. <laughs> right? If you have kids or had kids, grandkids, it is surprising how often things happen by themselves. It's automatically that thing broke. I don't know what happened. It just fell off and broke right there. Right? Well, friend, what is so glorious is that is what happens in God's kingdom. It just happened. Not without us tinkering with it and manipulating it, trying to get results by manipulating people's emotions and or maybe playing music that manipulates people or or me preaching sermons that are going to manipulate you or or doing programs that are going to try to reach people in a manufactured way. God's kingdom does not grow by our effort. But I want to make a note here and I want to pause. Because I want to qualify that statement. Do not hear passivity in that statement. The farmer had a responsibility to sow seed. But the results were left up to God. And one thing I want to caution us, really just two things. First, the farmer sows the seed. We have to be sharing the gospel. We have to. We have a responsibility. If you are a Christian today, if you claim the name of Christ, you will be held accountable for your evangelism in your life. I will be held accountable before God. He'll ask and say, why didn't you share that glorious news that you believed in more often? We have a responsibility to be disciples who are making disciples. The precedent is there by command and by example. Jesus' disciples didn't stay home. They went and shared the glorious news which had captured their hearts. That's what it looked like. I also want to caution us against pride. If, If the results are not dependent upon us, then we can't claim them for ourselves. They are God's and for His glory and not our own. The growth of God's kingdom is independent of our effort. 
There isn't a thing that you and I can do as a church, as an individual, to manufacture growth. I can't change hearts, and neither can you. But we can pray. We can plead with tears in our eyes that God would change hearts. But we can't change hearts. Nothing we can do to change hearts. This is why I caution us from using language like we give to grow God's kingdom or we're kingdom builders. Friends, there is nothing we do that builds God's kingdom save preaching the gospel. That's it. God grows His kingdom and He grows it by His sovereign will. And He grows where He wants to grow and He leaves barren where He wants to leave barren for His own sovereign will. And I can't explain that. He says as much in His Word. Some hear and some don't according to His will. We are neither able to grow nor are we able to build a kingdom any more than that farmer could go out there and manufacture germination in that seed. He couldn't go out there and scream and yell at that seed and tell it to sprout. Now, that ain't going to do it, right? It would look foolish if he was out there doing it. And it looks foolish when we do it in our lives. When we don't depend upon God to create growth and we try to twist people's arms into believing in the gospel, all we're doing is leading people to a hell where they think they're followers of Christ. And we're actually culpable in their damnation because we cause them to believe they're Christians when they have not submitted themselves to the reign and rule of Christ. When we have to understand the gospel if we're going to share the gospel. I want us to caution ourselves as we think about this. And I want us to trust in a great God who can grow a great kingdom. We have the promise that the kingdom of God will be great. We don't have to doubt that. We can trust that it will be great. And friends, I want you to know that that, that it's not dependent upon you. Therefore, you can't mess it up. I want us to look at one passage that is just earth-shattering to your minds. If you turn, and if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I mean, just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're not familiar where that's at, you can just listen. You know where it's at. Get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There in Corinth, there was a problem. Paul was not a very good preacher. But Apollos was. Apollos was a master at oration. He was a master preacher. Paul, he was just mediocre. And the Corinthians loved their Apollos, but some were nostalgic and they loved their Paul too. And there was a division in the church over, you know, hey, we really like Apollos. He's a fantastic preacher. Uh, we, we think he's just amazing, Paul. Uh, boy, he's more effective than you in evangelism. He, he, more people are coming to faith in Christ uh, through his effective preaching. Hey, when you come to town, hey, Paul, um, let's just let Apollos preach. There will be better revival here in Corinth. This is what Paul says. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed? As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, now listen, 
No, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. You came for self-esteem today. That, that pretty much pops that bubble. Right? You're nothing, he says, in God's economy. In his kingdom building, Apollos and Paul were nothing. How much more we? Nothing. But only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. God's building. Right? All of those is possessive. God's field, God's building. Right? No, see, he didn't say this is Apollos' building. This is this is this is Chris's church, or this is Bob Little's, you know, or, or Bob Lilly's church, right? This is the kingdom of Christ's church. Right? I have no ownership. That's why I took off the sign, Pastor Chris on the side. This is not my church. It never will be my church. This is Christ's church. You are Christ's bride. I don't own you. The kingdom of God will grow apart from us for God's eternal glory. Friends, I just want to give comfort to you this morning. You don't have to be Billy Graham. Billy Graham is... Don't you hear me here? Hear me now. Don't persecute me after church for saying what I'm about to say. And because I think I think Billy has said this, and I think he would say it to you right now, Billy Graham led no one to Christ. Billy Graham converted converted no one to Jesus. God captured hearts. That's encouraging to me because I, I I mean that man, he's a preacher, right? He's an evangelist. Don't confuse success. With faithfulness. God has called us to be faithful, not successful. Friends, you and I will stand before God in judgment for the way we lived our lives. And what He wants from us is faithfulness. That's why he says, well, do, good, my, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not my successful servant. Not my one that led thousands to Christ. Positionally, you are no less than Billy Graham. So long as you're faithful. And so long as we are faithful. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon human effort. It grows mysteriously and gloriously for God's kingdom. And I want to, we go to this last point, this last parable. The kingdom of God may seem insignificant and ineffective, but will in the end be gloriously expansive. Friend, we live in a world that I think sometimes we, we sit and, and, and we think that we're failing. I hear it all the time. I hear the narrative of, you know, this isn't a Christian nation anymore and blah, 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 blah. Friends, when are we going to wake up to the reality this world was never going to be a Christian world? It will be one day when the king comes back. 
That doesn't mean that we don't play a role within the world that we live in and we have a responsibility in our own nation. That doesn't devoid us of that. But friends, it doesn't put our hope in that. And around us, it may see in our own backyard as we see murder and rape and all the other crime around us and we want to despair over that. I want to remind you that smallness is how the kingdom started, but it will grow into a glorious thing. That's what Jesus is saying. He says the kingdom of God is as if a mustard seed was planted. The kingdom isn't the mustard seed, by the way. The kingdom is what happens to the mustard seed. It's about contrast. What it once was and what it will be. Right? I mean, just imagine right there. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Right? You've got a dozen or so people. A do- I want your mind to settle in on this. A dozen or so people 2,000 years ago impacted you sitting here today. And you tell me that the kingdom of God is small and ineffective. Millions upon millions have professed faith in Christ. Friends, we are not new kids on the block here. God has been working for generations and God's kingdom will be glorious in its final consummation. God's kingdom is amazing and wondrous and we can trust that it will one day be. We don't have to lose hope. We don't have to give up. And so three applications as we close. First, these parables teach us and produce in us confidence over despair. Confidence over despair. Friends, it's not time to give up. It's not time to throw in the towel and say, oh, this place is it's too far gone. America's too far gone. Uh, uh, the world's too far gone. We can't save it. My friends are too far gone. My grandkids too far gone. My children too far gone. Just no hope. Oh, no, friends. The reality of God's kingdom should give us confidence that in the end, God wins. That's what gets us up in the morning. That's what gets us. That's why we continue to share the gospel. That's why we continue to pray. That's why we continue to meet every week. Friends, if we believe that the kingdom is, of darkness is winning, well, why are we here? Let's go home. But if we believe in the kingdom of light and the power of the gospel, well, let's continue to meet and let's continue to bring more people to hear the glory of the kingdom of God and, the, and that God is wonderful. Don't give up on your grandkids. Don't give up on your children. Keep praying and praying and pleading that God's word would bear fruit in their lives. Secondly, success doesn't depend on our feeble efforts. I just want to keep driving you there and defeat that idol in our hearts that success means nothing. The number of baptisms and conversions mean nothing because it depends on God. Now, we may not be experiencing that because we haven't been faithful, but don't say it's because God isn't powerful to save. Don't say there's something wrong with the seed. Maybe the problem is our own faithfulness to share the gospel. Or it may just be God isn't converting people's hearts. It reminds us that there's no room for pride in the kingdom of God. As a church, when we see conversion, we don't pat ourselves on the back. We're thankful that God would save a soul 
even our own. Thirdly, it encourages patient faith. These two parables encourage patient faith. Patience. You ever wondered why the microwave takes so long? You ever sat there like, man, what is taking that thing so long to cook my food? And you sit there patiently, uh, unpatiently waiting, right? Waiting can be intolerable sometimes. It can really just annoy us. Look, have you ever been down at the MVA? (laughs) Right? It's like, this is the most broken system I've ever seen, right? Or the doctor's office, right? Everyone gets called but you. You feel like, you know, maybe I didn't put my name in, or maybe I did, you know, what happened here, right? But not so in God's kingdom. As a congregation, we patiently wait. We, we, we remain faithful, we plead, we share, and we wait. The farmer waited. He didn't go out there and poke around at the seed. He waited. He trusted. God will bear fruit here. We plead with God every Sunday, bear fruit in our lives, in my life, in your life, in your family, in our neighbor's Bear fruit in our community and the world around us. Bear fruit, God. And we wait. God's kingdom grows in a process. Right? First the blade, then the ear, then the full ear. It's a process. Over time. I I, want to just say, the seeds we plant today may not bear fruit tomorrow. I conclude with this from Charles Bridges in his book, The Christian Ministry. Bridges is writing to pastors, but but I think it's equally applicable to you this morning. But it convicts my heart every time I hear it. The seed may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. The seed may lie under the clods until we lie there. We may be long dead and buried until the fruit of the gospel seed we planted here in Catonsville, Maryland bears fruit. But we pray and we patiently wait for that day. Let's pray. God, you are a gracious God. That you would call sinners into your glorious light. Father, we are unworthy to be called. We are unworthy to be redeemed. We are unworthy to be saved. Father, that you would call us from darkness into light. That you would take rebels and bring them into your kingdom. You are amazing. You're mysterious. You're wondrous. Father, I pray that as a congregation we would have a greater confidence in the gospel today and the power of the kingdom of God against darkness, that the darkness is not winning, that you will be victorious over human hearts. We can stand upon the promise that every tribe and tongue and nation will stand before your throne and worship you.
Even our own nation will there bow before your throne and will cease to exist. And we long for the day when our King returns. And so, Lord, we pray, come, come now, save us from this broken world and bring your kingdom to light. Father, we pray that your kingdom comes in the lives of our homes, among our children, our grandchildren, that your kingdom would come in the lives of our friends and family and our co-workers and our neighbors and in the world around us. Oh, Father, may you capture hearts for your glory and our eternal good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's conclude our time.